welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Live in it, trade in it, and 
buy a property in Munich. Then Shechem said to Daniel's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price of the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father and all. They said to him, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us, circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We will settle among you and become one people with you. But if you do not agree to be circumcised, we will take our sister and go. The proposal seemed good to her more and his son Shechem, the young man who was the most honored of all his father's family. Lost no time to do what they said because they were delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gates of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in, if the land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that makes, sorry, that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle amongst us. All the men went out of the city gate and agreed with the war and the sun shaken, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon, Simeon and Levi, Doug's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looked at the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else there in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking to plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We, a few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? So, not an entirely uplifting you know, passage for something long, is it? A bit sad. So, a fairly grim tally of the number of atrocious plans. And without being disrespectful to the word of God, this reads more like a training manual for ISIS than it does the proud telling of the history um, and the founders of the faith. Nonetheless, this story is included in the Torah, and the people of Israel have read it every year since Moses wrote it. So it is important and requires our investigation, as difficult as it may be. And so the question for today we're going to wrestle with, and we are going to wrestle with it, um, is why is this event recorded? What's the learning from this? I'm going to start by taking a look at how the characters play themselves out in the story and their impact on Dinah. So first we have Shechem, um, a prince who read Dinah, a young girl, and then falls in love with her. Um, he becomes so besotted with her that he lost no time in becoming circumcised and persuading all the men in the city to do so as well. Prior to the inventions of anesthesia and antiseptic, gents, use your imagination. Um, uh, so the guy is soaked in his own self-impetuousness. He's persuasive, he's powerful, and the only two words he cares about are me and now. Uh, next we have his father, Amor, who sees there's a deal to be made here. He's hysterical, he sees the salesman, and he sees an opportunity in someone else's pain, and even his own son's foolishness. He tracks down his father, Jacob, 
the person who in today's corporate language we would be the person with a buying power and attempts to cut a deal. Understanding the actions of the brothers is a little more complicated. Um, was it pure revenge? Was there honour at stake? Or was it even an issue of family or national pride? As I looked into this event, I did some reading and spoke to some people wiser and better read than myself, and a number of them saw the response of the brothers, their deceit and merger as actually legitimate. They were defending the nation of Israel against defilement, and they were enabled by God to commit the violence. At the very least, God doesn't intervene to stop them, or even chastise them afterwards. I'm not convinced myself, but it takes an interesting argument. And at the very least, their pride was awoken and damaged by what happened to their sister. They were offended, and they saw it. Of course, we also have the other brothers, who seized the opportunity to the city unguarded and robbed it up to us, its women, and took its children captive. Again, these are the forefathers of Israel, the people that, um, who were reading the talk, were supposed to be proud of so this interesting stories in Finally, we have Jacob, who doesn't really say anything, but when he does, is only really concerned for his own safety and the political impacts of his brothers, or sorry, his son's actions. It's funny, you may probably see him distraught over losing Jacob and growing faint at the thought of losing Benjamin, but regarding Dinah, it's she's not even on his radar. Forsaken by her own father, the one man who was accountable for protecting her is more concerned about the politics of the situation than he is about his own daughter. And so, in the middle of all this political, social, and economic tornado is poor Dinah. Caught up in either storm, we hear nothing from her. Everyone else seems to have a voice and opinion, or more importantly, a vested interest in the event, but not her. And that kind of means true. She's young, female, physically, sexually, and emotionally abused, and will be forever known where she goes as that girl. In every sense, she is a victim. It makes sense that we don't hear from her. And I'm sure that those of us who work in counselling, therapy, and social work recognise the quiet, shrunken behaviour of the voiceless victim as they try to keep their head low, caught up in a series of events they don't seem to be the cause of, sorry, that they think they're the cause of, even though in fact they're the only blameless one in the whole situation. To add insult to injury, this is a story that was story dominated and eventually retold, even this morning, by men about a woman. This reinforces the victim of the nature of Dinah, not only in these events, but even in the way the story has been told. Dinah was a real girl in the Middle East, who throughout the entirety of history has never had a voice. But there's one other voice that we don't hear. Another person who has remained entirely silent regarding the whole story. And if this is one voice that I feel and have a desire to see, intervene and pass comments, and that's God. Not only does he not speak to the individuals or into the situation itself, but after that's of intervention that, as we see in Song of the Morrow, there is absolutely no comment even in the text around this as to his views on the situation. And in the absence of his voice is stark, bare, and noticeable in contrast to the rest of his presence in Genesis and in Exodus. In the literal sense of the word, it's remarkable. So what does it mean for God to be silent? Husband, when our, husbands, when our wives are silent, um, it speaks volumes. We know we're in trouble, you know, there's something going on. And parents, when our kids are silent, we know that they're in trouble, and they're hoping that we don't find out. But what does it mean for God to be silent? Because silence Bearing in mind, this is the God who spoke creation into order with his voice alone. He gave us 613 rules in the Torah, and he promises, foretells, comforts, wounds, corrects, and disciplines with 
words, and then appears to flesh himself known as word. Words mean a lot to God, and when he's intentionally quiet, it is a big deal. So let's try to understand the silence. Um, was he absent from Diana? Had he turned his back for a few minutes? Uh, I think this is unlikely, given he is the only present and omniscient God who knows everything. Perhaps he was hyper-present, relating to Diana as she suffered. As we read in Psalms, close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Somehow entering into a sense of camaraderie with her, joining her in the midst of a silence. We notice in the book of Jacob, when his friends come to visit him in despair, they sit with him for seven days, saying nothing, just being there, like a good friendship. Not for an advice or trying to make it right, but being there in solidarity. And perhaps God was near to Diana in this fashion. And this is supported in the literary sense too. Everyone else has a voice and capitalizes on the situation. And so if God's let loose with a big dialogue, this might also be seen as him capitalizing the situation just like all the others, using it to his advantage. So by being silent with Dinah, the text could be singing to us his intimacy with her. But in reality, this is not what the text says. It's nothing more than a lovely sentiment, and it's inappropriate to apply 21st century literary techniques to a text written thousands of years ago in the Middle East. Also, this idea of God present in our hour of need, whilst it is actually true and correct, as we look through the rest of Scripture, it is not what this text here today in front of us is saying. It's simply what I would have liked to have said, and I hope to reveal in order to validate my current understanding of God. And so I'm uncomfortable taking concepts and learnings from later scripture and applying them here, because the tale of Diana is not a story of close personal God who comes the week. It's a story of a God who is silent in the midst of abuse, violence, and tragedy. Okay. Sometimes our current understanding of doctrine can become a life raft as we experience traumatic events. It can be a source of great comfort, that's great. But we must always be prepared to reject or at least update our current understanding if it doesn't ring true with reality or scripture. And so as a result, I had to peel my own fingers off my life after comfort that my own doctrine was, and admit to myself I didn't know why God was silent here in Genesis 34. And so I did. I decided to reject the idea entirely that the message of Dinah was about the unspoken intimacy of God and pushed the life raft away from me and started swimming off into the deep, wide blue, unknown insanity. Because once you realise that your life raft is at fault, it stops becoming a life raft and it becomes a millstone. Now then, I'm not the sharpest block in the life, not life in the block even, when it comes to the ocean. <laughs> so when I talk about pushing off from the ocean, don't go imagining some Michael Phelps sort of character bravely swimming out to meet his all-known maker to receive some sort of divine revelation. It's probably more accurate to imagine a middle-aged, overweight guy in a slow lane in the gallery of the swimming pool, puffing and puffing away. And so it took a good couple of months of my highly frustrated floundering before the penny finally dropped. And then, if I'm entirely unhonest, only because I was listening to Genesis on the car stereo, driving home from work one day, rather than a rigorous, rigorous exploration of the original Hebrew, serious like that, God is indeed gracious. What I learned was this. In order to understand why God was silent and what the message of Dinah is, we need to read the preceding and the following few chapters surrounding Genesis 34. In the previous few chapters, we see Jacob leaving his father-in-law, where he has been tending flocks and takes his wife's children and possessions with him. Unknown 
to Jacob or to her father. Rachel had stolen the household items from her father, and she was hiding them in the backs of the cabin. When her father came out looking for the idols and searched all the backs, she said to her father, I'm having my period, I can't stand up, frankly sorry. He said, that's okay, and ignored her camel, so she got away with them, and she got to keep the idols. Then we have the incident with Dinah, which has been exploring. In the chapter following Dinah, God enters the scene again. And we hear him speaking, he tells Jacob to go to Bethel, settle there, and build an altar to God. On hearing this, Jacob does a strange thing. He instructs all the people to get rid of all their foreign gods they have, and he buries them underneath an oak tree in the city of Shechem. Jacob and his family leaves and go up to Bethel as God commanded, and the story of God's involvement in Israel intertwines and continues again. God's silence regarding Dinah is bookended by taking the idols and getting rid of the idols. I think this is the strongest indicator that we have as to what the story is about. There are other indicators too, such as the character flaw of Jacob, but it's reasonable to understand that God's voice becomes silent because the idols are allowed to be present or more likely worshipped. The more I considered this, the more terrifying this became, and the more I longed for my life flash of comfort. I like stained glass windows of Jesus holding hands. I'm not quite so keen on this dynamic relationship where God responds to our behaviour like this. All of a sudden, this becomes very real and not entirely within my control or if honest to my liking. It becomes very dangerous to believe in God who will distance himself if we worship other things. There is no technique or method we can employ to on one hand have the voice of God and on the other hand maintain an allegiance to others. We cannot serve two masters. To attempt to only reduce God to a genie able to be summoned at our making call. Instead and in reality we have a relationship both individually and corporately with God, and that involves allegiance, faithfulness, trust, and loyalty on our side. Yes, God loves us. He wants us to flourish and be all that he has intended. God is in support of us, and the Bible clearly and repeatedly demonstrates that despite our weaknesses, God continues to welcome, welcome us and to back us. But this must be understood in balance with the whole of Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, there are repeated calls to get rid of and avoid idolatry, as there are in the New Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. In it, God takes Judah to task, and one of the issues he raises is idolatry. God is then silent for 400 years. I want to be really clear as well. It's important to understand what is and what isn't being said. We can't say that every act of divine silence is a result of idolatry. God chooses to be silent for many reasons, as it is well. Sometimes it's to draw us close to him, Sometimes I think it is the withholding of his anger, and sometimes maybe he simply has nothing to say. What we can say though is sometimes God's silence is due to our adultery. So it's worth taking a quick detour here, um, just to lighten the mood a bit maybe as well, um, to discuss uh, the way in which worship idols standards and why it's such a big issue both in the Old and the New Testament. To do this, I'm going to paraphrase N.T. Wright's explanation from his book, The Day the Revolution Began. And the reason I'm going to paraphrase is because N.T. Wright's knows that Reddit isn't burdened with brevity and how to be up here by lunchtime. So essentially, we are created to be aligned with and focused on God. And when we do so, we act in a way that reflects how we act. And as a result, we provide health and goodness to those around us. We use words like righteousness, blessing, good works, and life to describe this. However, when we align our focus on something that isn't God, 
we mimic the behaviour of that thing, idea, or person that we are looking at. Because we are not made to behave in that way, we become broken, and our actions and behaviours become incorrect. And our negative outcomes for these lead to death. We use words like sin and death to describe those things. We see this paid out in the New Testament too, as we read, read in Romans, where Paul is talking about humanity in general through all time, uh, when he wrote, that they exchanged the glory of the immortal gods for images, instead of immortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. God, as part of his wrath, his annoyance, his punishments, hands people over to themselves, as a result, they wreak havoc on those around them. What came to us? Point of case, Diana. And this is why idolatry is such a big deal for God. It's not because he's insecure and he requires our validation by our attention. It's because it moves us off the path of living right, onto a path of destruction. And as a, a good, good father, he takes great issue with it um, and the harm it does to us. So anyway, back to Diana. So what does all mean today right, in, in 2019? The similarities between Diana's world and ours are striking. We too live in a culture of idols. Things that we give our money, time and sexuality to in order to it hold them in higher esteem than God. And as a result, people are damaged in the process, like Diana was. Idolatry at its heart is about becoming impatient or distrustful of God, and so manipulating other things that we trust have power behind them to meet that end for us instead. We take something that is inanimate, we breathe life into it, and then we manipulate it to do our bidding. This used to be done with stone statues and wooden figures, but nowadays, I think the biggest argument we have in the West is the self, it's me, it's, it's, it's us. We take something that is associated with us, our looks, our talents, our resources, our sexuality, and we invest time and money into it to breathe life into it in the hope that it will become more persuasive in the world around us. We over-educate our minds so we can always have a job option. Um, we spend countless hours in the gym, not guilty, in order to attract an equally perfect partner. And we sleep with a boss, not guilty, um, to climb the corporate ladder. We buy an excessive car just to demonstrate that we are really more than we really are. The list goes on. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with education, jobs, ambition, being fit, cars, or sex. They're all good and they're all fine. It's the trust that we put in them that turns them from a blessing to a curse for ourselves. We push others around to pursue our desires as a result. And so Dinah winds up at our social services for counselling in the old folks home abandoned, as a child in the forced hearings, and as an immigrant worker unpaid by an unscrupulous employer. She has a possession stolen by others and her reputation eroded. The diners in this world are easy to spot. They have no voice of importance in our society. And my estimation is that if we were to speak to each one of these diners individually and corporately and ask them if they felt close to God, if they had received some encouragement from above, a few might say yes. But the vast majority would say no. God, is it? God if he even exists, is silent, horribly silent. And that's great. It's a situation devoid of hope for many, a concrete wall of reality that most people can't realise over. So what's our role in this? What's our part in getting to the straight? Firstly, our role is to live our own lives idle-free, which is an ongoing daily process. 
Because by doing that, we'll be living in a way that gives us God's life. Rather than breathing life into idols, we need to let God breathe his life into us, which will, which will result in life for those around us. We need to show those around us a God who isn't an idol. We tell them of a God who isn't made of gold or of silver, isn't some kind of philosophy or life healthy life choice, doesn't shout you like Tony Robbins or Donald Trump, or see people as a resource, talent pool, or economic unit. And irrespective of what car you drive or how you look, you are loved, you have a voice, and you are welcome. We need to show them that the God whose voice is often silent is vocal in Jesus. But rather than God only speaking, he acted. The voice, the word, became flesh. Rather than offering opinion or laying down the law, he pitched in and he helped lift the load. He has detoured around the edge of the noise, opinion, and selfish interests that mark the dying experience and place himself in the middle of that pain. God loves us so much that in order to walk beside us and lead us back to himself, he became human and broken, just like us. In a remarkable act of love, God himself took on the role of diners in this world. And like Diana, who was also undeserving, allowed himself to be physically abused and hurt in a degrading public act of violence by the Roman Empire, which everyone saw all over that. He allowed himself to become traded for 30 pieces of silver by Judas and then had his garments allocated as the winnings of gambling by the Roman guards. He watched as others became violent in his unrequited revenge as Peter cut off the heel of the soldier. He watched as Peter denied he knew him in the prison courtyard. He allowed himself to become a pawn in the political game as his own people attempted to exert political power during the Roman occupation. And then, if that wasn't enough, was hanging on the cross, which was something he didn't want to do anyway if we listened to his prayer in Gethsemane. His experience, he experiences the silence of God. What happened when he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me, is a mystery. And I certainly don't have have much of an idea of what was going on in his voice. But in his cry, I hear a faint echo of all the diamonds. Wondering where the Heavenly Father is in the midst of it all. He is the only God to be able to say ever, in an authentic, real sense, to Dinah, I have become one of you in order to restore you. He refused to stand alongside our idols, but he does stand alongside us. And that fellowship with God not only offers a friend and ally that we can hold on to lift us up, but as he comes alongside us and we alongside him, something changes inside us. The pain remains and the struggles do continue. There is rarely a magic restoration where everything becomes happy. But in addition to damage, we find a powerful love, peace, joy, a patience, a kindness of goodness, a faithfulness, and the enablement to have mastery of our own lives again, rather than the shadow of our trauma being the hand of the afterwards in our actions. With this fruit that the presence of God provides as it breathes into us, we find a sanctuary and a place of healing that causes us to flourish and start to come home again. We enter into a relationship with God. Can I have musician up, please? Diana gives us an insight into the nature of victimhood that is so well articulated and so succinct. The circumstances providing us with the understanding of the character of God and also the silence experienced by victims today. It brings together the holiness of God who will not stand alongside idols, but will stand beside us to restore the damage done by idolatry. It helps us to understand some of the mystery of the cross and how a very real God acting intervened. And so it reaches out to people and communities bent out of shape by a disproportionate attention that we give to things, peoples, and ideas.
but are not dark, and you can keep them like dark. And all this from a young girl, the history has largely forgotten when it's the production of Bible studies. If you can relate to Diana, if your voice is silenced, and if your life is damaged because of the actions of others, will you come and join us as we follow Jesus? Will you come and be part of our community as God breathes life into us corporately and individually? And let Jesus come alongside you. You're more than welcome. There's plenty of room in our gatherings for coffee and in our life. Listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.